Well, first of all, thank you to the children's ministry for those uh, singing those songs. Uh, I will worship or I will follow, and um, second to none, our kids have been practicing that for feels like years, <laughs> especially since VBS. Every time we do uh, family Bible Bible time, they they love singing that song, and they get all hyped up doing that doing those motions, and they can't go to sleep because they're so amped up. So I blame you, Julie, for that. Um, and uh, thank you, Pillars Ministry, for uh, declaring of God's goodness and great uh, greatness to us. Uh, your lives, um, your hearts behind singing that song really ministered to me and encouraged encouraged me. And I'm sure encouraged all of us. Well, looking back on 10 years, um, I had m- much time in the past few weeks, maybe even a few months, to reflect on um, 10 years of, of our church. And we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much, so many reasons to celebrate this morning. I ask my, myself, what am I most thankful for? But what is giving me the greatest joy and hope now and for the future? Um, I would say it is uh, the reason behind our church. The reason why we exist. The reason I am the most thankful this morning is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the source of my recent renewal and reformation. You know, I, I knew this, but I kind of forgot, or it was placed in the periphery, and I lost sight of um, how greater, great a sinner I am, and yet how God's grace, mercy, and love is far greater than my sins, that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. Um, I discovered and rediscovered that the gospel is more beautiful and more powerful than I'd ever imagined. As as we look back on the ten years, as we look back on our lives, in a lot of the gospel we find out that we didn't do anything in terms of our church, we didn't do anything. The elders, the pastors, the members of our church, uh, we did nothing. We are all just fruits of the gospel. We are all the result of what God has accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.10, that is what Paul said. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. And yet He adds this qualifier. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He says, yes, you see my life and it's clear. I am devoted to the cause of Christ. And if you compare myself with all the other apostles... All the other workers for Christ, I worked harder. But he says, but, but that's not me. I'm not the one working. It is the grace of God that is working through me. 
Colossians 1, 5, and 6, Paul reiterates this theme. He says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. He looks at the Thessalonian church and their maturity, their growth, their love for Christ and love for one another. And he's telling them, it is not you. It's not just happening in Thessalonica. It's happening all over the world. Because the gospel is doing it. It is this glorious message of his son that is accomplishing this. So on our 10 year anniversary, I want to take our eyes off of ourselves. Take our eyes off of our church in our past 10 years. And I want us to look up. I want you to, I want to lift your eyes and lift your hearts and fix them on the cross of Jesus Christ. Will you do that this morning? Will you rest your hearts? Will you be less of a Martha and more of a Mary? And sit at the Lord's feet and look at the cross once again. I fear for too many of us, we presume the gospel. We think those are the elementary principles of the scriptures. That the gospel is milk and not meat. The gospel is, we have a simplistic view of the gospel. Yes, it is simple, but the gospel is not simplistic. It is not a, a basic elementary truth. It is the glorious truth. But because of this wrong perspective, we miss out on all the God-glorifying benefits and blessings that God has reserved for His children. Um, I shared this with you on our video, on our web, that um, I had lunch with Pastor John Coe this past week. Uh, for four hours, we sat together and we uh, talked over the gospel and Recently, God has been doing a work in his heart. Uh, he has rediscovered the gospel as well. I shared with him how I feel like I'm 70% born again. You know, I'm saved again. And he felt the same way. He told me that all his life, he never could understand and really comprehend, really under- receive God's mercy, the mercy of God. He is such a conscientious uh, person that he took on Christianity through effort, through performance, through outward deeds. And he was always harsh on himself for his failures, weaknesses, shortcomings. And in turn, he would be that way toward his children. And in turn, he would be that way towards his church. And yet recently, with this new understanding of the gospel, his heart has changed. He understood, maybe for the first time, that the gospel is not just a means of our salvation, but it's a means of our personal walk with God today and our self-image. That God is not like us. That we evaluate ourselves and others based on performance, but not God. His love toward us is unconditional, undeserved, unwarranted, and it is unchanging. And it is finished, declared once for all on the cross. It is not like shifting shadows. It's not at the, not at the stock market, up and down, every day, every moment. 
He is faithful to love us even when we are faithless. We spent four hours together going back and forth talking about the gospel, how it is changing us, how it has caused him to go to his uh, son and confess to him that he had uh, treated him based on his performance, expectations, external behavior, rather than loving him, simply purely loving him as God had loved him. And it was such a sweet time, such a joyful time. Um, I realized driving home, I didn't taste the food at all, right? Because we were just savoring, delighting in the gospel. I didn't taste a single bite. We wasted some good sushi that day, you know? We should have just went to soup plantation and had salad <laughs> and saved money. And, um, you know, ate sushi later and not talked about the gospel. <laughs> but... It was such a joyful time. Um, we were wondering, we were amazed how for 20 years, he's been a pastor for over 20 years, and how all, all these years we missed it. How could we, uh, men who were in the ministry, our jobs are devoted to the studying of the Word of God, how could we have missed on this glorious truth? And our conclusion was, we started out... Um, with this heart, uh, with a, a pure longing for Christ and His glory, to love God, to live by the gospel. And yet, more we did ministry, more we served, more we led, more good works we did, it became a source of deception. These things became a source of blinding us and leading us astray. You would think ministry would aid us in our pursuit of Christ. Instead, it hindered us and caused us to go astray. I mean, I remember when I was a young Christian, when I was just saved, um, loving Christ was my motivation. I would go uh, door-to-door witnessing, and it was really the gospel that was motivating me. We would open our preaching at Cal State Long Beach, and it was really to exalt Christ. It was just to share the gospel and to have others experience the freedom that Christians have experienced. Um, my mom was here this morning, so she was there uh, when my dad got angry and kicked me out of the house when I told them I was going to be a pastor. And I remember, I look back, as far as I can tell, it wasn't out of pride. It wasn't out of any kind of... Um, boasting in my works. It was really a desire, a longing to to do what is right in the sight of Christ. But then again, as I said, more and more as I served, more and more uh, ministry led me astray. Uh, I I liken it to a, um, a weird illustration. Mike Tyson in his heyday. I mean, he was the most feared heavyweight champion, at least in the modern era. Uh, he was being interviewed one time, and uh, the interviewer was saying, well, this guy that you're going to fight, he says he has this plan. He has a strategy all set to beat you. And Tyson's response was, well, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Everybody has a plan, and then you get punched in the face, and the plan goes out the window. Next thing you know, you're on the canvas, right, kissing canvas, face down. Um, 
I heard that, and, and I, I know I know what he's talking about, the spiritual realm. Um, we planted this church 10 years ago, and all of a sudden, I was just a regular, you know, I used to be just a regular guy. I never wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be either, you know, Bono on U2 or, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jordan on the Bulls. But I, like, I couldn't sing, and I couldn't really play basketball well, so... That was my just fantasy. Never desire to be a pastor. I become a Christian and start serving, leading praise, Bible study, campus ministry, doing youth ministry, doing college ministry, and the gospel. And next thing we know, we're planning a church, and I'm the pastor. And so I'm getting punched in the face. All my insecurities are coming off in the woodworks of my heart. Fear of failure. Fear of uh, disappointing people. Fear of being exposed as an imposter where people will one day figure, figure me out and see through me. Wait a minute, James, this, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not, a, he's not, like, a, he's not like Paul. He's not like John MacArthur. He's not really quoting Greek. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right? He doesn't know Hebrew. Wait a minute. People got to figure that out. Uh I mean, just the, the fear of just being responsible, right? Being responsible for people. More and more, um, got involved in ministry. I was doing ministry. Um, I was getting punched in the face week after week. And uh, my plans went out the window, and I lost my way. I look back and I, I realize what, I, what happened. Yet I, I have this gospel realization now, looking back. I didn't know what was happening then, but now I look back and I know what, what was happening. Uh, it's similar to um, Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve, the most calamitous chapter in all of the scriptures, and all of human history, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned into the world. Their first reaction to sin was shame. So what did they do? They hid. They ran from God. That's the first instinctual response to sin. But the legalist response, those who uphold and believe in the outward behavior, their response is to compensate for their shame by devoting themselves to religion, to rituals, to external good works, to working harder, ministering more, to doing more good works. You're compensating. You're trying to mask that shame. You're not running from God. You're not running to God, but you're surrounding yourself with Christian things to compensate for the shame that you have for your own sinfulness. So externally, you look great. But spiritually, internally, you're backsliding. All the while, your heart is getting more and more hard and more and more callous because you're just out of drudgery, out of duty, out of responsibility. You're grinding it out, but your heart is far away. That's what I was experiencing. Just grinding it out externally, hoping that nobody will figure me out. Nobody who will see through my outward facade of external behavior through the condition of my heart. And one of the greatest fears is that you'll burn out. And I was burning out. 
So I ran out of fuel for motivation. So what do you do? You start reading Christian books, started reading Christian biographies, listening to sermons, and they would keep me and hold me for weeks or months. Some intense experience in ministry will hold me for a few months, but I would always run out of fuel. And so out of desperation, I shared this already, you know, I'd resort to any kind of motivation outside of illegal drugs to motivate me and to, uh, to serve Christ and, and serve Christ's church. Whether it's movies or music or, or secular books or novels, I, I did whatever I could to, to continue on. I would use whatever worked. And I remember what worked when I was in high school and college. Fear of failure worked for me. Right. At school, fear of an F would keep me up all night to study. And then in sports, fear of missing that shot would cause me to work that much harder. Um, I employed these things in the church, ministering out of the flesh. All the while, though, my heart was getting harder. I was burning out. I was struggling. And so when I took that sabbatical and the church was gracious enough to give me that three months off, I needed it. Uh, my humble uh, perspective was if I didn't take it, I would be forced to take it. There would be uh, uh, injury in my heart. I would go past the point of no return where I would, my heart would be so hardened and calloused. I would be so resigned to my own uh, uh, lack of motivation that I would be forced to take the sabbatical. And that is when it happened. This new discovery of the gospel happened during my sabbatical, and it wasn't what I—it wasn't what I expected going in. It wasn't in my plans. If you remember, uh, five six months ago, going into the sabbatical, I was uh, going to learn from churches, Sovereign Grace at Arizona, and or Covenant Life in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. I was going to go to the Counseling and Education Fellowship Conference in Philadelphia. I was going to read, um, go to the Ligonier Conference with Sproul and MacArthur. I brought all these books to read. I read, read, uh, brought a book by a Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, on the Gracious Spirit. I brought a Jim Collins book, a book on business management. And I was reading all these things and learning a lot, and it was great. And then one day, just, you know, I, I, there was a file on my computer, a sermon by Tim Keller. And uh, Jason was raving about Tim Keller, recommending him to me. But, you know, Jason's also the guy who loved Thin Red Line. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, everybody has different tastes in movies, but, I mean, I mean he doesn't like Thin Red Line. He loves Thin Red Line. So I just said, maybe I'll listen to Tim Keller later. Maybe he just... I started listening to him, listening to him, and uh, started talking to Seren about what I was learning. And I'm one of those guys where I'm really slow on the uptake. I realize much later that I'm immersed in something because when I get in, into something, I get so like passionate and locked in. I don't realize I love it until like weeks, months, even years later. After a few weeks, it's like my eyes have been opened. Uh, my heart has been changed. Uh, my perspective has broadened. 
my motivation, there's no fear of burning out. I find that the gospel is limitless power to motivate me to serve and worship Christ. You know that, that point, you guys remember in the 80s, they had those 3D posters? You guys remember that? Uh, I'm glad that fad went away, because at the hardest time, trying to see what everybody else saw in those 3D posters. There would be at, I'm going to Cal State Long Beach, it would be a wa- long walkway, and there was, the vendors would sell that on the walkway, and uh, I would be late to class trying to see the spaceship that was in this poster, <laughs> and everybody would just walk and see it in a minute and keep walking. I'd be like, I don't see it. But I remember one time, somehow, you, you don't focus your eyes, you kind of look at the glare, and it clicks, and you see this picture, 3D picture, hidden in this image. Well, I remember when this happened for me with the gospel. It was when I learned um, Tremper Longman's definition of the heart according to the Bible, Old and New Testament, the Hebrew mind and the Greek mind. For us, we look at the heart and we either, either think of the mind or emotions. But that makes no sense, especially in the context of the Hebraic mind and the Greek mind. Not only that, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. What does that mean? If it's your mind, is He repeating Himself? Love, your, love the Lord your God with your mind and your mind and your soul? Or if it's your emotions, love the Lord your God with just your passions, your affections? That's not how... Uh, the Bible writers were thinking. Tripper Longman said that the best definition of heart in the, the Bible's definition is motivations. Motivations. And that's when it was like all of a sudden you see it. The dots are connecting. And I, I, the Bible is, is new again. I realize that there aren't ten commandments in the Bible or Ten Commandments that God gave in Sinai, God gave 12 commandments, right? The Ten Commandments that are popular is not have any of the gods before me, not make a graven image, and obey the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, do not lie, steal, you know, murder, uh, covet, all those commands. But when a lawyer came to Christ in the Gospels, and he asked him, Lord, Rabbi, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment he didn't say, do not have any of the gods before me. What did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he's talking not about behavior, but out of your motivation. What ought to prompt you to obey the Sabbath. Prompt you not to covet. Cause you to tell the truth. It's not duty, but because you love God. You honor your parents because you love them. And that is what pleases God. Apart from that, apart from that faith work, Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God. In fact, it is an abomination in the sight of God when we do the right thing with wrong motivations. It is an offense to God. It offends God when we out of pretense perform externally, but our hearts are far away. First Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3, Paul said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
if I have prophetic powers, and he's speaking hyperbolically here, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I had this faith to remove, literally remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give, if I was such a, a man of suffering and sacrifice, so devoted to the glory of God, that if I gave away all that I had, I delivered my body up to be burned as a martyr for Christ, yet I wasn't motivated by love, have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, this hit me like a ton of bricks. I understood everything crystallized. Everything made sense. That's why Jesus in John 21, after Peter denied the Lord three times, what was his question? What was, what was the interrogative question that Christ presented to Peter? Repeated three times, Peter... Do you love me? See, before he said, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to go to prison for you. I'm going to die for you. I'll never deny you. I'll stand by you. And Christ said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? See, that's all he cares about. If Peter loves Christ, it doesn't matter if he dies or not. If he denies the Lord or not. If he is faithful or faithless. Because he is standing not by his strength. But by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He is standing not on his righteousness. On his effort. His goodness. He is standing or even falling. All by the grace and work of God. So you go back to uh, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they sin, they hide, they have children, their two sons, Cain and Abel, and they offer sacrifice. We know the story from our Sunday school years, right? Cain is a farmer, a grain, and he offers sacrifice, and, and Abel is a, he tends animals, he brings sacrifices, sac- uh, offer up to God, and God says, he accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he has no regard, he rejects Cain. And all these years, you know, I, I couldn't explain why God would reject Cain's sacrifice. I've heard explanations where, oh, it's because God isn't like, you know, he, he's, a, he's a carnivore, right? He's not a vegetarian, right? He doesn't want, he doesn't want wheat and grain and oats and barley or, you know, animal sacrifices are better. Somehow that sacrifice was a better sacrifice. Like, Abel did it better. You know, Cain brought leftovers and Cain used, like, not good wood, and he didn't set it up straight. And, you know, he wasn't excellent in how he sacrificed. But Abel was this meticulous guy. He was disciplined. He was diligent. He had an Excel spreadsheet on the, on the animals, and he parceled out the best, and, and, and he dressed up, and he took a shower and did it the perfect way. And so God saw that and said, God said, Cain, I don't want yours. Abel accepted. There were, I, I, I never read a satisfactory explanation until I understood that First Samuel sixteen seven does not consider his outer appearance. God does not look at what man looks at. The man looks at the outward appearance, but God, what does he look at? He looks at the heart. And he looked at Cain's heart. He looked at Abel's heart. And he and Hebrews eleven four says, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. What does that mean? It means Abel sacrificed by faith, trusting in God. 
Cain, he was the, the first one creating religion. He, he started a, a, a false system of, of religion, of self-righteousness, and giving to God based on own effort. So God rejected Cain's sacrifice and accepted Abel, Abel's sacrifice. So we see how this is a, it kinda, it's a, a, a prototype or a, a preview of what is to come. Uh, you know, postmodern people, secular people, people who are not spiritual or not, they're living in sin. At worst, they're disrespectful to religion or to Christianity. You know, they're largely indifferent, apathetic to the church, the Bible, to the cross. The vehement hatred comes from those who are religious, who are legalists, who pride themselves on self-righteousness. When Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God and he saw that, what did Cain do? He murdered Abel. He killed him because that so angered him. What did the Pharisees do? It wasn't the prostitutes, the tax collectors, right, the drunkards. Right, that killed Christ. At worst, they spat on Christ, yelled at him, mocked and scoffed him. That was the worst. But it was the religious. It was the legalists. Those who desire to set up their own righteousness and in their pride pursue Christ, pursue God. The Pharisees were the ones who murdered Christ. This is, uh, this exposes us. Right, this, this, uh, humbles us because we find at the default state of our hearts, right? The default state, when you reboot your computer, it goes to its default settings. Every, every day, every moment, our hearts, it reboots itself. It's a cycle. And every time, the reboot default setting is a legalist, self-righteous, self-boasting, trusting and believing in ourselves and our own efforts rather than the gospel of Christ. And that's what Christ, his first sermon was about. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You know, I, all these years from the Bible, it was like, you know, with my left hand, I was beating myself. With my right hand, I was praising God. I, come, I never saw this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't contrasting the, the secular and the Christian. He was con- contrasting the religious and the Christian. Right? The religious and the gospel. Because they're both praying. They're both fasting. They're both giving. But what differentiates these two groups is not how well they pray. It's not how much they give or how long they fast. That has nothing to do with it. The only differentiating factor is that the religious, they give out of pride. They pray with wrong motives. They fast to be seen by men. Gospel people, we're motivated by the gospel, for what Christ has done. So we pray in secret. 
we fast, right, to draw closer to God, to, 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 to have time alone with God. We give ourselves because of our love for Christ. That is why um, religious people repent only of their sins. Christians, we repent of our sins and all our righteous deeds done apart from Christ. We repent of our good works because we look back and we don't examine our good works externally. We examine them internally based on our motivations. And we realize that's because that's determinative, we repent of all the good works we did apart from faith in Christ. John Gerstner said, the main thing separating you from God is not your sins, but your damnable good works. And that's why I went astray. That's why I lost my way. Because I discounted my motivations. I just focused on our my, my responsibilities, my, my, my duties, regardless of my motivations. And more and more, that separated me. Uh, George Whitfield said, Before you can be certain that Jesus Christ is in your heart, you must be brought to see not only that your sins must be done away, but also your righteousness. We must do away not just with our sins, but our righteousness. And that's what, um, I mean, I talked about this before, Philippians 3. That's what Paul experienced, right, in the road to Damascus. Saul, he had this resume of all his religious works, all his righteous deeds. He had this long litany of things that he had done for, done for God. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he was physically blinded, but his spiritual eyes were open, And he saw them as... They were as rubbish, scubalon, trash. And so he repents of his good works. And he pursues Christ. But 3.17, what does he say? Not that I have attained all this. But I press on to take hold of that of which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Because for Paul, just like us, as a sinner saved by grace, his default state was a legalist. Default state is as a Pharisee. So he doesn't, oh, I got it now. I understand the gospel. It's Cubalon. I cherish Christ. Work is done. Here he is, over 30 years into the ministry. And he says, I haven't taken hold of this. I do this. I pursue this. I press on every day. Not to do more things, but to trust Christ. To pursue His righteousness, His righteousness alone. Motivation is everything. Good works done by pride is nothing. It's less than nothing. Good works done by fear, anxiety, to please people, to please yourself, same thing, scubalon, less than nothing. That is why Christians need the gospel. That is why we hear a sermon, and the gospel is preached, we don't say, okay, get to the meat. I know the gospel. 
right? Why? I'm a Christian, right? Get to the meat of the passage, right? Get to the applications, get to the imperatives. No, the gospel is God's indicative, what God has done, God's truth, that we, we are in desperate need of to understand, to, to believe, and to apply. Romans 1.15, that's what Paul said. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's talking to the church in Rome, and he is eager to go there. Why? To preach the gospel to them. Colossians 1.5 again. It is the gospel that is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth. As we uh, celebrate our 10th year as a church, I am praying for a reformation in our church. I am longing and hoping for reformation in every member in all of our lives. The reformation of the 16th century, Luther made a, a change in the, the church structure, architecture, how the church is set up. He replaced the communion table that was in the center and brought the pulpit to the center. He made the scripture, the, the Bible, the preaching central. My prayer is that by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, that God will put the gospel at the center of our hearts. Gospel that was at the periphery. Right. Marginalized, presumed upon, neglected. That the wind blow in, in, in us, in our hearts, and place the gospel where should always be for believers in the center of our hearts. Um, let me suggest to you two ways, two possible ways um, we can do this. One way would be to to pursue the knowledge of the gospel. Pursue the knowledge of the gospel. Now, there's two Greek words for knowledge in the Greek. No, right? Uh, Oida is uh, intellectual knowledge. Gnosko is personal, in- intimate, relational, experiential knowledge. Um, so, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Good Will Hunting. Have you seen that movie? Uh, there's a scene where um, Will Hunting is sitting with a uh, Robin Williams, of all people, I, Mork, um, they're, they're sitting at a pond. And, um, you know, good, Will Hunting's a smart, he's a brainiac, he's a genius, he's this incredible mind. And uh, he just kind of really offended um, Robin Williams. And they're sitting there, and Robin Williams says, you're just a kid who's just smart. That's all you are. Right? If I ask you about love, you'll quote me a sonnet. You'll give me various definitions of love. If I ask you about art, you'll tell me about Michelangelo. Right? 
different paintings of the world. If I ask you about war, you'll give me facts, statistics. But do you really know about love? Have you ever loved someone so much that you're vulnerable, utterly vulnerable? Have you been to the Sistine Chapel and seen Michelangelo's work and felt small in the sight of it? Have you ever been in a war and experienced your best friend dying in your arms? And because you're smart, you can regurgitate and wax eloquent about love and about art and about war, but you're just a punk kid. You don't know anything. Same thing with the gospel. I think our knowledge deceives us. Do we know the gospel? Well, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We can regurgitate what we have heard, what we have read, what we have studied, and wax eloquent about the gospel of Christ. But that's not the, the Bible's exhortation to us in knowledge of the gospel. It's not this intellectual knowledge. It's gnosko. It's relational. It's intimate. It's experiential. It's personal. It's heart. It's internal. It's like tasting something. Like taste and see if the Lord is good. Like through the honey from the honeycomb. You can't describe, a t- you can't adequately describe and and. and Help someone understand what taste is. You have to taste it for yourself. And it is so, so visceral, so um, all-consuming, heart-consuming, sensory-consuming. You can only experience it personally. That is what God is calling us to with the gospel. A mere knowledge of the gospel will not penetrate the heart and deconstruct or destroy the legalist that's within you. And so you'll go about the Christian life with a, with, with a just a glazed look and just look great in the sight of everyone. Right? You'll look like a great person, maybe even a great Christian. But all along God says, you're not motivated by the gospel. And therefore, you don't have the fruit that comes from the gospel alone. You are nothing. This does not please me. Would you uh, pursue this personal knowledge of the gospel by faith? That's how how God breaks through for us to experience the gospel. It goes beyond just our minds. Where we experience it is by faith. We are saved by faith, not by our knowledge of the gospel. Likewise, we are sanctified. Our Christian life is by faith in the gospel as well. It is, in this way, boasting is excluded and all glory goes to Christ. Because all we did was have a mustard seed of faith. And God has done it all. So would you trust in the gospel for your Christian life? For your ministry, for your walk, Galatians 3, 1 through 6. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you just this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He supply the Spirit to you because of works? Or just by faith, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So I suggest, first thing, is to pursue this intimate knowledge of the gospel by trusting in it, by believing it, by depending on it. Secondly, uh, this has helped me tremendously to bring the gospel from 2,000 years ago to right now. To have the gospel be the basis of your self-image, your self-identity. Gospel as the basis of your self-image, your self-identity. People we idolize have the power of recreation. People we idolize have the power of recreation. So, uh, parents have this power. Your, Your spouse has this power. Your best friends have this power. Everyone says you're beautiful, and your parents say, oh, you're ugly. Your husband or wife says, no, you're ugly. Everybody says you're beautiful. Your wife says you're ugly. Your husband says, your parents, your identity is, I'm, 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 I'm not beautiful. Right? But the opposite is true, right? Everybody says you're ugly. <laughs> Everybody says, man, you know, you have a face for radio, right? <laughs> but... Your husband says, you are beautiful. You're the most attractive woman I've ever met. Your parents say you're beautiful. You idolize them. You believe yourself to be beautiful. Uh, Same thing with uh, singing. Everyone says you can't sing, right? Everybody says. But the people you esteem, idolize, love, says you can sing. Your parents tell you, your spouse. Or... The chief idol is our, ourselves. So we believe what we say about ourselves. Everybody's wrong. Right? My parents are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. You love, your, you idolize yourself. So you tell yourself, I can sing. And you make a fool of yourself on national TV. <laughs> because right? people that, have, that we idolize have power of self-creation. Parents have this power, spouses, our, our own hearts. For the Christian who believes the gospel... Gospel has the power of this recreation. God, through the gospel, takes that power away from our parents, away from our spouse, away from our friends, away from ourselves, and places that power of recreation in the gospel. So, family member, spouse, your own heart tells you you're a failure. You're an utter disappointment. You are a loser. You are just hopeless. Look at you. You call yourself a Christian. You are serving in the church. You're a leader. I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself. Where do you get the gall to to do this or think this way? You are nothing. You're a failure. You're a loser. And the gospel says, not positive thinking, the gospel says our worth, our value, our identity is not in what people say, or my works say, what my title says, what my resume says, what my heart says. The gospel says our worth, our value, our identity is based on what Christ did for us once for all on the cross. And God, through that cross, has demonstrated His love for us, period. 
God loves us. And that can be never taken away. God has adopted us into His family. We are His children. We call Him Abba, Father. And that can never be taken away. So our self-view is based not on what the world says. Not on what our people we idolize say. Or what our own hearts say. It's all based on the gospel. His death on the cross settles it. So we view ourselves and we view others not based on income. We don't base whether you're single or you're married. Do you have kids or no kids? Or how many kids do you have? Or how good are your kids? Are your kids smart? Or what's your kid's GPA? Or how, how, how athletic are your kids? We don't see each other based on gender. Any of these things, we view ourselves and view others solely through the gospel on what God has done on the cross. That is our self-identity, our self-image. That is how we view others. The kingdom of man is uh, winners never quit and quitters never win, right? Kingdom of God is winners are the only ones who have quit. Quitters are the only ones who win. It's exactly the opposite. Right? It's exactly the opposite. In God's economy, we stop straining to build up our self-image or people's view of us through works, through performance, through effort. We rest. There could be a peace because we have God's love. We have the cross and God through the gospel has recreated. Recreated us. Cornerstone, it's been a privilege to serve you for 10 years. It's been one of the highest joys of my life. Next to my wife, living my wife and my family, you're my highest joy. It is my prayer that God would do this work of renewal reformation the gospel we can't do this through works I, I wish I could I pray I could have this power to do this supernaturally on each of us God has to do it by grace as we apply faith and trust in the gospel may God put the gospel at the center of our hearts and may that be our motivation and may each of us experience that personal knowledge of the gospel and may each of us be blessed to experience the freedom that comes by it. The joy, the delight, the exuberance, the, the, the life that Christ promised. Right, John 10.10. 10. He came to give us life, to have it abundantly. Not to go back and live like slaves. But to live as free men and women who are set free by the love of Christ. Cornerstone, may we dive headfirst into this ocean of the gospel. And may we not come up for air. May we immerse ourselves with this beautiful truth and uh, cause us to be uh, people that, that, that truly glorify Him because not of ourselves, all by the gospel. Let's pray. We used to do this a lot in our early years. I don't know why we stopped, but 
Let's do this today for a few minutes. Would you pray a selfless prayer? Would you take your eyes off of yourself? And would you pray this prayer for the gospel for the person sitting next to you, to your left and to your right? They, they're, we're helpless. We can't do this on our own. Only God must do this by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, by the gospel, by His grace. Would you ask the Lord to do a supernatural work having the gospel, being experienced, known, recreating a person, sitting to your left and to your right. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy. That's the word we throw around too often without really considering what it means. Lord, we were your enemies. We deserved your holy wrath. We deserved to be condemned forever. You was completely in your, according to your righteousness for you to do this. Lord, we were your enemies. We murdered your son. We spat in his face. We had no fear of God in our eyes. We lived with pride, with a sin of Satan in our hearts. I will, I will, I will. And yet, God, through the gospel of your son, you have mercy upon us. You saved us, not by our works, but by your grace through faith. But Lord... Just like Israel and just like Peter, we go astray. We follow our own ways instead of your way. And we have gone back to Egypt and enslaved ourselves to to a cruel slave master instead of worshiping you and being with you and your family. We ask for your, humbly ask for your forgiveness. Lord, it is in spite of us you have caused us to be here for 10 years. It is in spite of our utter sinfulness and weakness and foolishness you have allowed us to be here today for 10 years. Lord, may we not repeat this uh, sinful foolishness. Lord, would you open our eyes to the gospel of Christ? Would you help us to see, and as Paul, we have not yet taken hold of this. That this is not a one-time experience for us to have in our salvation, but it's a daily pursuit to consider all our righteous deeds as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And we have not yet taken hold of this. That which you have taken hold of us, that we will pursue the upward prize, the calling you have received in Christ. that because of the gospel everything we believe and how we view ourselves and view others in this world will be recreated by the gospel we will not think like this world we will think according to the gospel 
the grace, according to the grace you've given to us. That is our prayer for each other. You will grow this church through our hearts, not through our works, not through our ministries, not through our efforts. You will grow your gospel, your church through the gospel in our hearts. Lord, we pray. We are helpless. We cast ourselves at your feet. Lord, would you show yourself merciful again to us? Do a great work, gospel work in our hearts. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.